Somebody asked me if we were going to finish all the parables. Actually, depending on your definition of a parable, there's probably at least a hundred of them. And it depends on how you define them. All right. Sometimes Jesus was giving an example and people have called that a parable. A lot of the imagery and symbols that Jesus used, I have a book that I can recommend to you that has about 250 parables from the Bible, you know, about a hundred of them coming from Jesus. So if you want to dive deeper into it, the source is there. Just check it. I'm sure a lot of you are going to rush out and buy the book, but I'll recommend it. It really goes deep. Okay. So this is where we've been. We've covered a lot of things. Today, we're coming back full circle. We're actually going a little bit back to the parable of the sower, where we began after we've covered all these difficult things. Hopefully along the way, one of the things that you've noticed is that the parables we've covered are tougher than most of us thought they would be. Okay? A lot of people thought they were going to be easy at first. We heard that comment throughout. Sometimes wrestling with not taking too much out of the parables. All right? And now we kind of deal with two parables about ending and is specifically about the end times, all right? So let me pray one more time to open our minds to this, because tonight is kind of when I'm going to let it marinate in a little bit. Lord, I pray as we open your word tonight that I would decrease and that you would increase. Would you remind us, Lord, that we're not here just to hear a lesson, not just here to read poetry or a story. Lord, that you are literally the Lord of the universe, and it should be you who's standing here, that your word should be the ones that shine through. I pray, Lord, right now that even if I have not heard you correctly, that you would correct everything so that it is you speaking to us tonight. Let us honor your lordship in our teaching. I pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to dive into the parable of the great banquet. All right. Jesus is spending time in this parable at a Pharisee's house, and he's starting to talk about what it's going to be like in certain circumstances and how people will find out about the kingdom. And people are listening to him, and immediately before this parable, he has just told the Pharisees, who feel that they need to always be in the most important positions, he has just finished telling them, be careful, you should take a seat of humility. That way, when someone finds you in a seat of humility, they can come and say, hey, you should move up. And he starts talking about how the first will be last and the last first. And he's giving kind of a difficult parable about privilege and not presuming upon yourself that you're in a privileged place. So almost it seems to break the tension. One of the people at the banquet throws out these words to kind of see how it goes. You know, there's this difficult parable that Jesus has just spoken to the Pharisees. And you know, like when you're sitting at a dinner table and somebody says something a little bit uncomfortable, there's kind of this silence and everybody's hoping that someone will just break the tension. Well, Jesus creates some tension in the previous parable by reminding the Pharisees, even the guy he's at his house, that you should not be looking for places of privilege. And if you do, you might be sadly humiliated. So one of the people jumps in and says, when one of those at the table heard him, he said to Jesus, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Just kind of throws out this statement. Almost sounds like he's just trying to say anything to move the conversation forward. Just throw something out that almost nobody could disagree with. I mean, who's going to say, nah, nobody wants to eat at the table of God in the kingdom, and nobody wants to do that. So he throws out this truism. Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, interesting that you should bring that up. Interesting that you should talk about being at the table. Let's see which one of you sitting here with me today would be at the table. And he tells them this parable. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and inviting many guests. 
At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. So another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Anyone familiar with the parable? Heard it before? It's a parable that's often taught because it's easier than some of the other ones that we've covered. What's common about these excuses? Anyone notice what's common about them? Yeah, they sound valid. That's a good point. I mean, it's not like they're just wasting time, but they seem somewhat valid. Kevin? They're all concerned and worried about themselves. Yeah, they're inwardly focused. Okay? I mean, they're inwardly focused. You guys know that at a time, when, in, especially in this kind of culture during the first century, if you give an invitation, it's not like, kind of like, hey, would you like to come to my party? I mean, sending somebody an invitation to a banquet is a very important act, and it's a great sign of rudeness and can be a great sign of, like, this friendship is broken when you decline it. You usually should have a good reason for declining it, and it, I don't know if these would qualify. But I like that Ryan said they were valid because it's not like they're doing something crazy. They seem to have something that is of concern, but they're inwardly focused. Just got married that is hopefully not yeah the marriage one doesn't fit in our society okay but i will tell you that both the ones about buying a field and looking after oxen were definitely financial concerns the ones that deal with my ability to make a living and money okay the one about marriage people have debated some people say it is also financial in nature because usually there was a dowry that went along with marriage and either the person was working towards it or working it off and doing something. So all of them are concerned in some way with dealing with something related to them. I know in our society, we like to feel like, well, marriage, like people should just have their own time on their own and everybody should respect that. Yeah, that probably doesn't translate well from the first century, you know, where no matter what stage you were at in terms of your life, you had to live up to the code of the time, which is if you received an important invitation, you were expected to go no matter what you were doing. All right, so we have the invitation, we have the setup. So the servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full I tell you, not one of these, those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So you have Jesus speaking a parable about the end. I think most of us understand what the meaning is, but let's just go through it. What's the translation from the parable into what it means to the listeners of the parable and to us? What's it saying to us? It, it's like today, everybody's, we come up with all these lame reasons why we can't have a relationship with him even though it's the best invitation we've ever, anyone will ever get. And we ignore it because we're busy? Yeah. We're tied up? Or think we're more important than dealing with that. Okay. Let's go through the analysis. You said that the host of the banquet appears to be our Heavenly Father. I think you're disagree with that. Sounds kind of reasonable. All right. We know that the people that are being invited are 
first some people of importance, then we have some people that seem of lesser importance because they have to go out into the streets and the alleys, and then later they have to go out to the roads and the country lanes. So clearly they're just like running out to find whoever they can. All right, not the first invited guests. Who do you think those people are? Who could they be in this story? Yeah, James. Uh, maybe you could say that the, uh, the first set there out on the street corners were the people of Israel who were tax collectors, people who people who were sinners, the outcasts, and then the next gospel came to the Gentiles. Okay. Yeah, certainly. And that goes back to what Ryan was saying about it might be about Israel itself rejecting the message and it being to other people. But here's the important one. What's the banquet? What's he inviting them to? I mean, you guys know that some people are rejecting it. What's the banquet? Heaven? Yeah. I mean, it comes, it's the kingdom. And the sad part of the parable seems to be, this, this person, remember, setting up the parable is saying, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is almost saying, I, I mean, I don't want to read too much into it, but his next line almost seems to say, when he starts telling the parable, like, oh yeah, you think you're going to be there? Let's see if you would be one of those that would be there. Where's there? Well, there is the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is making a statement is, there are going to be some people who get invited to be in the kingdom who won't go. On their own, they won't go. They're too busy. They're not going to make it because they're so preoccupied with this life. The reason I said tonight we're kind of doing a full circle back to where we've been is because if you look back, it should remind you of this parable. When Jesus was explaining the parable of the sower, remember we had Jesus as the sower. And we also said the sower could be anybody who spreads the word. It's both in that parable. But we had this beautiful picture of Jesus who is reaching into some like bag of seed and throwing it all over the place. Good, bad road, doesn't matter where it was going. That most people are so focused on the soil in that parable, and is it going in good soil, rocky soil, that we miss for a moment that Jesus is smarter than that. If he wanted to, he could just plant in the good ground and not even do anything on the road or anywhere else. And here we have a Lord that's so generous with his word that he's almost throwing it into places where he knows it won't grow, but he still gives them a chance. Remember, one of the places where the seed, the word, the invitation went is among the thorns. And when he was explaining the parable, this is what he said. He said, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. And skipping down to where he explains about the thorns, he said, the one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it making it unfruitful. That's exactly what's going on in the parable of the banquet. People are receiving the invitation to be in the kingdom. They're receiving the word. In that case, it's coming in literally in an invitation. Come to the banquet. In parable land, this banquet is an invitation to the kingdom of God, and they're saying, I'm too busy. I'm too busy for your banquet. And the Lord, in his, at least in the parable, it says, he becomes angry. Maybe that's just a use in the parable. But in the anger, he says, you know what? Those people don't get to come to my banquet. They want to snub me because they're too busy to come to the banquet I've prepared for them. Then bring in everybody else who will come. Invite anybody you find, bring those people in. So there's a tie-in right back. We were wondering, like, why would Jesus, a careful, 
smart, all-knowing sower sow seed in other places? Well, one is I believe we said he was going to give people a chance no matter where they were. Let it fall where it may almost. Not just plant it in the good ground behind an ox like you would normally plant seed, but just throw it everywhere it went and hope some of it went up. But he knew also that if it landed in the thorns where we worried about life and we were deceived by our own wealth, it wasn't going to grow. It would come up, but it would get choked out. And here we have exactly that. People who are doing well, it's being choked up. Remember, he's sitting at a Pharisee's house. He's speaking to people of privilege. He's speaking to people who are too busy, maybe even doing the Lord's work in their mind to understand the invitation that he's giving right before them. You know, we often think of Jesus constantly telling these parables. Think of what he's saying as he's telling the parable. I'm sure his heart must be sad as one man exclaims, blessed is the man who'll sit at the table of the Lord in the kingdom of God. And he's thinking, wow, you guys don't even get the message I'm here to deliver today. Let's just see if you do. And he delivers this message to them. And I'm sure for them, a lot of them were saying, what are you saying? Are you saying that we're not going to make it? We're too busy? And he might say, remember this parable? What does it mean for us? Well, one, we know that the invitation's been made. I pray that everybody who's hearing the invitation, even right now, even tonight, understands that the invitation is very real. The invitation is to enter the kingdom of God, that we take it seriously, that we're not so busy in our own lives and what we're doing to say, I'll get to it later in life or I'll take God more seriously at that time. But it is a story that we should keep in mind. Okay, here's another one. I'm going to end with this parable. Another parable about the end. This one is the parable of the weeds. More accurately translated in the NASB as the parable of the tares. Let's read through this one. And this one, Jesus actually explains for us. So we don't have to guess too much tonight. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? The reason that I use the word tares next to weeds, the NASB uses the word tares. Tares are a very specialized kind of weed that is especially dangerous when planted next to wheat. The reason for that is because when you see the seed of wheat and tares, you can't really tell them apart. In fact, even after they start to sprout heads like they talk about in here, and the body of the plant starts to come up, you can't tell the difference. The first few times I read this parable, I think like, why didn't you just go weed the garden? I mean, isn't that what we do? We just go figure out like what looks like a weird plant and what looks normal. But that's what made this act so heinous, was you can't really tell the difference until it starts to actually come time to harvest, when you can tell what's wheat and what is just a weed. So clearly somebody is really trying to mess this person up. So the master answered, no, don't pull anything up. Because while you are pulling the weeds, you may also root up wheat with them. 
let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Jesus is going to tell us in a second what it means. Anyone want to tell us before we get there? Remember, the people who are hearing these parables, they didn't get to hear the other part, the explanation. That was to the disciples. So if you're hearing this parable for the first time, what does this say to you? What's going on? Why would he tell this story? Is he like, love farming? He seems to talk about <laughs> sowing and weeds and wheat. and What's he saying? That the enemy being either Satan or someone else coming in basically introducing sin in a way, but then God, as the farmer or whoever, the guy in charge, basically saying that, hey, I'm not going to get rid of sin or sinful people because there's a chance that it will get rid of people that are valid, people that are holy, or the chosen people. Should we open the envelope, see what Jesus says? Anyone cheating looking in the Bible already? Yeah, Barbara? Sure. Yeah, that's why I think it's a parable at the end, because he's kind of highlighting what's going to happen. What's going to happen at the end, by the way? What does he say is going to happen? Let's look at the last two lines. What is, what's, the, what's the clue for us? He's going to get rid of the bad. Okay. Well, get rid of the I mean, obviously weeds are bad. You know, you can't really do anything. Yeah. Actually, he's not just going to get rid of them. What's he going to do? He's going to burn them. You know? Let's look at what he says and come back and look at this. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him. Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Can you imagine what that conversation was like? Like he just told this thing, walked in the house, and a whole bunch of guys go running after go, hey, what was that all about? You know, translated in the Bible it was. Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. All right. I wonder if they really talked that way, you know. The one who sowed good seed is the son of man. Who's the son of man? Jesus. Jesus. The field is the world. So, I mean, he's just laying it right out there. Okay, this is not one that needs a lot of interpretation. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. Notice in this parable, unlike the parable of the sower, where he's like throwing it out there, letting it fall in different places, this guy did sow in good ground from the beginning. And the field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom, The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. So you're right about it's about the end. Unlike the parable of the sower where the seed was the word, the invitation, in this case, the seed appears to be people. So he switched the meaning in this one, and he's telling us this has a different meaning. Here, the seed turns into the people. Good people and evil people. Question. Yeah. Well, how does that work? Because if the wheat was already there, and then he comes in, and then he sows bad, is he so bad people? Like That's what we have to struggle with. Jesus used a specific word of a specific type. I mean, he could have picked anything other than wheat. He could have said, well, I don't know if this grows in the Middle East, but he could have said corn, you know. But he didn't. He used wheat. He used wheat probably because they grew it, but he used wheat because there was a weed that was so close to it, it's indistinguishable for a long time. So one possible meaning, yes, is exactly that, that there are people that are going to look at the outset like Christians, 
like they're belonging to the Lord until you finally figure out what fruit they bear. And Jesus also made that clear elsewhere. So we know that's not just from the parable. He said, you'll know someone by their fruit because a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. And likewise, a bad tree can't bear good fruit. And he's saying the same thing. Think of the wheat when it finally is ripe for harvest as the fruit of the wheat plant. He goes on and says, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that caused harm and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You guys know that in many of the parables he ends with, take that wicked servant out and put him in the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And here he's not in the parable anymore. He's explaining the parable. He's using the same terminology outside the parable and saying, in the end of the age, I'm going to throw some people into the fiery furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Okay, still think the parables are fun? All like fairy tales? That's a hard word. What's he saying? Comment? What about those people that... You know, they just are murderers and they're killers and they're blatantly, like, you can look at what they're doing and they're not bearing fruit. Like, it doesn't really, he doesn't really talk about those kind of people that much in his parables, you know? Like, so it's almost like he's directing it to people that, that are Christians almost, you know? Well, let's break it down a little bit. We know that the field is the world, all right? Now the question becomes, is this a parable about the church you know, Christians and people who look like Christians? Is this a parable about Christians and people who are evil? And people, despite his explanation, still look at both of those as possibilities for those type of people. Philip? Well, like it says the field is the world, not the field is the body of Christ or like, I mean, the, the Christian community. Right. The idea of them being weeds and tares or being similar to the wheat. I think that that concept is important, more so in the idea that than to say, well, that all sons of the evil one are so similar to sons of like the kingdom that we can't tell them apart. You know what? Maybe that is the case. So let me let me push back on that. I think we want to believe that outwardly Christians look a certain way, and like non-Christians look a different way, right? But I think realistically, let's let's be real. I think this group is honest enough to get down to it. How many places and people do you know that you've been to where you see a Christian who just sticks out like a jerk, right? And then you see a non-Christian, you don't even know if they're a non-Christian. They're so generous, they're so good, they're so in everything. I mean, it'd be very easy for us to go like, oh, we're Christians, those people are non-Christians. You know, I know a lot of non-Christians that are friends of mine that I would love them to be Christians, but I'd have to say they're better people than some Christians I know. In fact, there are better people than most Christians I know. Some are more generous, some are more loving, some are more giving. It almost seems like once we get into the group of Christianity and all our sins are forgiven, then we could just do whatever we want. So first, I'm not so sure you could always tell a Christian from a non-Christian. Even by their deeds. I, liked, I know we sing like they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our right, all that stuff. And I know we're supposed to be like a light on a hill and all those kind of things, but many times we're not even close. Many times we're like singing and praising and then we go outside and we're like just running people over in life. So that's a hard word for Christians themselves and that may be one of the reasons that they're there. 
a way to focus it even further is think of the number of people who, who believe their mission in this life is to do something good for other people has nothing to do with God in their equation. I'm not going to pick on, but an easy example would be like somebody who believes totally in saving the environment. They're not killing children. They're just like saving trees. But they don't believe, not that there aren't Christian environmentals. Let me just make that digression. But they're not doing it for God. They're not doing it for the creation. They just do it because they love trees or they love the ocean. Well, that's why he probably used an example that would freak people out, that there's a person who you think of as unholy and unworthy who's a better friend and a better neighbor you know, and that's what Kevin was reminding us when he brought that parable up. Yeah. So first, there's that angle to look at it from. You also talked about being troubled by the fact that he waits until the end to decide what's going on. That troubles a lot of people. Because there's a question that actually is rubbing against it that comes even before that, which is, if God is this all-powerful sower, if he's this all-powerful farmer, How's he letting the devil sneak in on his land anyway? I mean, shouldn't God be out there with the most all-powerful mother of a shotgun you've ever seen in your life? And when the enemy, like, sneaks onto the land, like, that guy's just toast. Why does God allow an enemy? I mean, in the parable, it, like, you know, you see the, like, the servant asking, like, how could this happen? And he's like, an, an enemy did this, you know? And he almost seems weak. He seems, like, not capable of stopping the enemy. But we know our God. He's capable of stopping the enemy at any point. In fact, we know he was the one who allowed the enemy into the garden in the first place. He's the one that allows Satan to tempt and play with us now. He's the one that limits Satan's power and allows him breath sometimes. He's the one that could just snuff it out right now. This goes back to our cry that we were asking earlier, like, so what if Jesus won the victory on the cross? What good is it doing us? It's just like he's still loose in the world. Why don't we end this? And here's the answer. It's in the parable. The answer is that God, in his wisdom, not only allowed this to happen, but is holding back his hand patiently to allow everything to work out. Now, there's something that's not in the parable and that is something we believe as Christians that you could, you could be a tear and then become a wheat. <laughs> it's not in the parable. It's not what Jesus intended, but you have to think about that angle, which is the reason God's holding back is that he doesn't want to throw everything out early. What the servant is, in, is asking him to do is to just, let's stop early. Let's not let this thing play out. And the master's saying, no, let it play out. Let people who are going to come into the kingdom come into the kingdom. Let everybody go all the way. Everybody has a chance, even the terrors, all the way to the end, and then we'll figure it out. It's not the God that we sometimes want to have. We want to have a God who just says, Satan, you're out of here. Not allowed to tempt, not allowed to screw around. God's bigger than that. More powerful than the one we imagine. He's the one that says, no, let him do his worst. If you want to go deeper into the subject of how God allows Satan to do things, we did a whole series on spiritual warfare. And in that series, there is lots of time spent on where did Satan come from? What's the limitation of his power? Why does God let him run around? All these questions that we're kind of touching on right now. We spent four or five weeks on the topic, so I can't squeeze it into three minutes. But I will remind you of one thing from that series. In studying, I came to the conclusion, too, that so many times we ask God, 
hey God, can't you just hurry up and finish this whole thing off? Jesus died on the cross. We should have had a little bit of Pentecostal thing and then boom, it's over. And I always used to ask, why do you say you're patient so that none would perish? And I realized that every time we ask for God to come back now, like in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come now, I'm glad he waited till at least the year 1969 because then I wouldn't have gotten to go to the kingdom of heaven. Some of you being born much later than that, like some of you in the 90s, right? Yeah? It was your birthday. What year? 91. <laughs> at least we're glad he waited till at least 91 because then we wouldn't have been in the kingdom. I mean, when we're saying like, Lord, why do you let Satan run around? He's like, his answer could be like, what, you want me to stop? Pick a year. Because if I stop in that year, that's it. The doors are closed. By allowing this to continue and to play out, I, you, everyone here get to grow up as we. Until it's time for the harvest. And he's saying, it's not time yet. I'm patient so that none would perish. I like that explanation. It like, makes sense with the rest of scripture. But what it says here is that's not because, well, we want to wait. Well, you might take some of the wheat with you. Like, oops. Like, well, we'll kill Christians accidentally and they'll go to hell to yeah. like, I mean, like, it's But didn't like, he do that once before? Well, what do you mean? Well, didn't he do that once before in the flood of Noah, let's say? Where things had gotten so bad that he could only find a few good people among a lot of really, really bad people. And then he said, you know what? He followed the servant's advice. You're right. I don't know how this happened. Of course, I can't imagine it. He's like looking at a servant. I don't know how this happened. You know, I'm Lord of the universe. I don't know. <laughs> but saying that he, that happened, he wiped out the whole earth and started over. And then he said, I'll never do that again. That's not, I'm not going to do that again. My plan is to let it work out to the end. Yeah, I agree that he's saying that the reason in the parable, I don't want to pull up the weeds, is because I'm going to pull up some wheat too, and that's going to destroy it. But I think when his ending comes, he's really talking about how we're going to end it all. I think he's, he's anticipating the ending. Because the reason I say anticipating, and I, I, I want to make clear that this could, be, this could be a speculation from the parable, so there's the disclaimer. But I really, I really focus on the word bundles. All right? If you asked me, now you go, go out in the field, you see all the weeds, you can now tell because now we're at the harvest. You see the wheat, wheat has the little thingies, that, you know, and, weeds, and the tares don't, okay? Go out there and yank them up and let's burn them. I'm not going to take time to bundle them together. <laughs> I'm just going to pitch them into the fire. That word to me stands out like there's a careful collecting of these things in a decisive way in the way you're going to dispose of them which is very much like we know the Lord is going to gather everyone in front of him at the end and then say, I'm going to separate those things from one another. I can't base my whole theology on that word, but there does seem to be some care in it. And I went to see and other commentators, some agreed that yes, there seems to be some deliberateness in the word bundling. That's just my thought. What's the import of the parable for us though? I don't think we could cover all of the parables or any of the parables without getting to one that squarely hits us between the eyes and says, guys, in this life, we have a choice to make. It's not directly out of this parable, 
but we do know that the evil one is planting all around us, trying to take away as many as he can. He says to us that they're going to be thrown into the fire. The reason I just want to focus on the word fire for a second, I mean, remember, he's out of the parable now, so we're not talking symbolic language. He's actually explaining it, saying we're going to throw them into the fiery furnace. We talked about this during our series on heaven and some other things. A lot of people like the notion that, that hell is just a place away from God, like a very cold place on the distant side of the moon or something. We spend so much time as Christians literally burning people with the idea of hell and trying to scare them into Christianity that today, unfortunately, many Christians suffer from a, a fear and aversion to hell. Like we just don't want to talk about it. We don't want to mention it. We don't want to bring it up in conversations. And we tend to just go, yeah, like you go to heaven and it's beautiful and splendor, but if you don't go to heaven, you go to like a kind of a bad place. You know, we don't actually come around and go like, it's a very hot place. And Jesus over and over and over uses the words fire, burned, those kind of things to describe hell. The only reason I bring it up is because I was tempted for many years to just think of hell as a nice cold place that's just away from God or just not being with God is the definition of hell. And honestly, as I look at the scriptures, Jesus says, no. No, the definition of hell is a fiery place. That's the way I keep describing it. Not in the parable, but in his explanation of the parable. It's a fiery furnace, a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, meaning lots of suffering and regret for what's happened. That's not a pretty picture of hell, but I want to point out that a lot of times we're kind of comfortable thinking of it or kind of changing it into a euphemism, and he's like, don't be fooled by that. So just as a footnote to your own further study in case you're dealing with the subject, as C.S. Lewis once said, if there was one doctrine in Christianity I would change, it would be hell. I, would, I could just get rid of it. It would be so much easier to tell people about Jesus if you didn't have to mention this. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm just telling you the way it is. It's not good. I don't want to be ignorant of it, but I don't want to spend all my time dwelling on it because it's a doctrine that's been abused by the church. We should know that it's there. We should know it's a bad place. Our heart shouldn't be rescuing people from hell as much as loving people and bringing them into the kingdom where God wants them in the first place. I mean, yes, there is. if I had my choice and say, like, would you rescue them? Sure, I would. But the whole goal is really not supposed to be just this whole fire insurance concept that we've talked about. We really want to be reaching out the way the Lord reaches out. And that's kind of what we're doing. I thought it would be good to end on a parable like this that's about the end. That shows us again that even in a simple parable, we're just talking about wheat and tares, that he has some very difficult words for us. Thankfully, I believe that everybody here understands the gravity of the situation has already decided to be among the wheat. And that's good. If you haven't or you're still struggling with it, talk to somebody around us. I mean, this is something that's of grave importance, you know. You don't want to be the person that reaches out and finds the invitation and then rejects it because you're too busy or because you don't understand it or because you don't believe it. I mean, the invitation's made. And this group makes it all the time. So I trust that you would, like, seek it out if you're questioning it or still asking about it. So that kind of wraps up our parables discussion. Like I said, if you want further study on the parables, there's plenty more. Let's pray and wrap up tonight and uh, do a little bit more worship. Lord, I imagine you speaking these words to your disciples and to the Pharisees that sat around to listen. 
and I'm just cognizant of the fact that so many were wondering not only what these words meant, Lord, but, but how they could follow you in light of such difficult, difficult concepts that you laid down. Lord, we sometimes want to minimize you into a God that we could understand, take your teachings and make them easy to follow, simplify them into rules and cubes and, and tracts. And Lord, your word is so much bigger than that, that no matter how much we study it, we still have to marvel and we know so little. I thank you for giving us these weeks to study your parables. I pray that our desire and our appetite for your word doesn't diminish, but actually, Lord, that you would use it to grow. That no one in this room would rely on these conversations as a way of learning about you, but that we would all hunger for your word on our own so that you could speak to us directly. And hopefully, Lord, our heart and our understanding would follow. Lord, we thank you that you have given us the invitation to your banquet. We thank you that people in this room have accepted that invitation, that our place at the table, Lord, in the kingdom is secured, and that you've given us time in this life for the rest of our lives to do that which you commanded, to love you and to love others and to take your word to other people. Lord, help us to do those things. You've given us time. Everything is taken care of. You've told us, come for all things are now ready And we get this extra time to bring others to the banquet with us. May we use that time wisely, Lord, to bring others to the banquet. Carry your invitation to each person until there is no more room. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.